Father, thank you that those words are true. You are our living hope. I pray that that would be made abundantly clear again for your people that you've gathered tonight as you bring your word to us. Father, help us to trust you, increase our faith in you. Glorify your name and edify our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and be seated. Thanks for coming tonight, uh, gang, to Epiphany. Uh, tonight we're, we're taking just a little break from our look at the book of Ecclesiastes, which we've been, we've been looking at Ecclesiastes now for a while, and I'm going to preach a message tonight from uh, Philippians chapter 3. And I'm actually going to read the whole chapter so that we can then dig into it and just take it apart piece by piece uh, to get a little bit better understanding of what God's word says to us. So Philippians 3 reads like this. Uh, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like 
his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here ends the reading of God's word. Well, let's start off with a question for you to ponder and to consider before we dig in. What is it that you are working for? What is it that you are straining toward? What causes you to be willing, almost involuntarily, to strain for? Well, according to a uh, most recent article in the New York Times by Aaron Griffith, what most young people are striving for and working for and straining for is in fact more work. In an article entitled, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? She writes, never once at the start of my work week, not in my morning coffee shop line, not in my crowded subway commute, not as I begin my bottomless inbox log, have I ever paused, looked to the heavens, and whispered to myself, thank God it's Monday. But apparently, Griffith writes, that makes me a traitor to my generation. I, I learned this, she says, during a recent visit to a bunch of WeWork facilities. I'm guessing if you live in the city or anywhere near it, you've probably seen them. They're all around town here. And she describes going into the WeWork places and just seeing everywhere throw pillows implored with busy tenants to, quote, do what you love and neon signs demanding that you hustle harder and murals that spread the gospel of TGIM. Thank God it's Monday. Even the cucumbers in the WeWork water, which by the way, I can verify this, in the WeWork water coolers, even the cucumbers have an agenda. Literally, it says, carved on some of the cucumbers, don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. Can't even get a break from veggies. So welcome to, uh, to hustle culture. Obsessed with striving, being relentlessly positive, devoid completely of humor. And once you notice it, almost impossible to escape. And you all know what this is like. It's just the air you breathe here. And so she's asking the question, why is it? Why is it? that work has become the end-all, be-all. She even says, you know, there's, there's a sense in which everything, even the fun things we do, are almost always filtered back into how we can apply them at the work desk. I mean, and she brings up some good data to back this up, which I won't get into, but, but she has a theory at the end. She has a theory. She says, perhaps the reason we're treating work as so, so, so vitally important is because we've all gotten a little hungry for meaning. His participation in organized religion is falling, especially amongst millennials. And in San Francisco, where she lives, she's noticed that the concept of productivity has almost taken on a, a spiritual dimension. And so she says, you know, it seems that what's being sold is that more work is not just desirable, but inherently good, meaningful, significant. Well, enough of that story. Um, yeah, I mean, the facts are work in its place is good. Working hard is good. 
there's nothing wrong with working hard and straining forward for even doing good in your career. But if work becomes the end, if, it, if you work just for work's sake, well, then it will become an idol and it will do what idols always do to you, which is they overpromise and underdeliver, and eventually you'll burn out. Eventually you'll be like what the cucumber says, done. Like you will be done. And so we want to, we want to work hard, but we want to do it with the right aims. We want to do it with the right goals. And especially that's true when it comes to our spiritual lives. We, we don't want to say that work isn't necessary or that our hard work spiritually isn't necessary. Paul talks all about that in this text, straining forward, pressing on, moving toward the goal. I mean, that all implies that he's working, but at the same time, he doesn't want us to make it the end all be all, working and straining, etc. So he says it this way, I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what I want to talk about tonight is how we press forward in our lives as Christians. How do we strain forward? And the first thing Paul says in our text in verse 2 is he instructs us to look away from something. Look away from your own works and your own righteousness and those who would teach you to look there and you'll be able to move forward in your Christian life. He starts it off this way, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what is he talking about? Well, the language that Paul employs there was actually language that is geared towards some very familiar opponents to him, namely the Judaizers. Now, who are the Judaizers? Well, in the New Testament time, there was this group of people that had infiltrated quite a few churches that were basically telling people that if they wanted to be truly faithful Christians that have real assurance and confidence that they will be saved by God on the last day when they face him in judgment, then they not only need to believe in Jesus, but they also need to make sure that they're obedient to all the law of Moses in the Old Testament, that they're eating kosher, and that they are indeed circumcised. This was causing, of course, a lot of people to worry, like, am I really a Christian then? Am I really a saved person because I'm not circumcised? I don't eat kosher? And, you know, do I have to do this, Paul? And you'll see, anytime he deals with this group, Paul gets really frustrated. He gets a little, gets a little angsty. And so in this passage, it's literally like he's picking a fight. And here's why. The first thing he says, watch out for the dogs. Now, this was an insult that the Jewish leadership would actually refer to Gentiles by, to pagans by. Paul is saying, Paul is calling them dogs. I mean, they would have definitely picked up the insult. And then, and then these people that were so proud of how obedient they were and how good they were, what does he call them? Evildoers. And then just to add insult to injury, he calls them mutilators of their flesh. Your precious circumcision, all it is, is just a mutilation of the flesh, Paul says. He continues, For we, the church he's writing, we are the circumcision. We're the, we're the chosen people who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh? If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence. I got more. And then Paul lists off the reasons. I mean, if there was going to be anybody that could sort of justify their existence by what they had done and by their religious behavior, it was certainly Paul. And so Paul says, listen, I mean, 
I was circumcised in the eighth day uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. So I got the right bloodline. I'm from a really prestigious tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, as a matter of fact, as to the law, I mean, if, you, if you're thinking that it was just bloodline, no, it wasn't just that I was born in the right place. I obeyed the law. I was a Pharisee. I was zealous for the law as to righteousness. No one could find anything to blame me for. So if you want to play that game, folks, the fact is I got you beat. And I'm telling you right now that even though I got you beat with all this works and all, these, all this morality, Paul says, Paul says, although I got you beat, whatever gain I had there, I counted it as loss. All of it. So let's just apply this here. This is the extraordinarily counterintuitive message of Christianity on blessed. The world tells us we naturally think that the way we get ahead in the world is by earning enough trophies, getting enough medals, enough wins that we can sort of prop up our confidence upon them. And so we assume that that carries over into our spiritual life. There was an interview with Michael Bloomberg maybe, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago. He was the former mayor of New York City, and, uh, and he was sort of asked about his time as mayor, and he's quite proud of all that he had accomplished. You know, he had worked to fight obesity and help to decrease smoking in the city, and, you know, he was very proud of himself, gun control, etc. And he made this statement to the interviewer in the New York Times. He said, quote, I'm telling you, there is a God. When I get to heaven, I ain't stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. That's the way we naturally think. And Paul says instead, no, 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 look away from any teacher or any teaching that would have you look to your accomplishments for your confidence before God. In fact, he says so far in this passage to say that before God, he counts all his works, all his accomplishments, and all his righteousness as rubbish. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. Uh, when people translate the Bible from Greek or Hebrew into English, often there's many words that could be used to describe whatever the word was in that language. So rubbish is a fine translation of the word. It's an accurate translation. But if you really wanted to get to the way that it was probably used most often, it was a specific kind of rubbish. Really, the way the hearers that Paul would have heard him saying this about his works was, I count it all as a pile of crap. It's true. That's the way they would have heard it, actually maybe even stronger. And I won't say it. But you get the point. It's genuine. That's real. In Greek, it's, it's about as, it's pretty salty. It's not good. So he says, all my accomplishments, I, it's, like a, it's, it's like that. It's like a pile of dung. It's like manure. I don't need it. Why? Because before a holy God, all my works are stained with 
self-righteousness and sin. You know, like Isaiah the prophet says, even our best works are like filthy rags. You know, I mean, Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher from uh, close to this area of the country, said, quote, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So here's the question that I have for you before we go on to the next point. What, what is it that you are tempted to look to for your confidence in this world other than God? I think we've all got them. Career success or enough money being the smart one in the room. I mean, we, we find our identity, we find our thing, and we sort of latch onto it, and like, if I can just crush it at that, then I'll be something, I'll be worth something, I'll be meaningful. And Paul says, no, you, you want to run away from that. Now again, nothing wrong with working really hard. Work hard, strain. Remember, Paul says that, strain for it. Great. Just don't depend on it for how you stand before God. For that, Paul says, you've got to look back to Christ. Listen to verse 7 again. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In just these few verses, Paul mentions the title Christ four times. He wants, it's all he wants. He's just focused on that. The righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Why? Because it is through simple faith in Christ that Paul says we get to know the power of the resurrection, that we can share with strength in his sufferings, even becoming like him in his death, but not being defeated by that. So that you see the difference. To contrast the two positions, the first position from the Judaizers is look at yourself, look at what you're doing, make sure you're measuring up. Be neurotic is all get out. Examine your belly button constantly to see. I mean, it's, no, it's nonstop. Whereas Paul says, no, 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 I'm going I'm to constantly try. This is where I need my focus, on Christ and what he's done. And when that is the case, well, surprisingly, you're going to find that actually that frees you up to then press forward. I'm telling you, you work from freedom as opposed for freedom, it changes everything. I'll give you a quick illustration of this. In his book, Scandalous Freedom, an author named Steve Brown, pastor, tells the story of his daughter she had uh, signed up for, was enrolled in an AP English class in high school, and after the first uh, two days of class was absolutely beaten down by it. It was just too much for her. And so she comes home crying, and she's like, I, just want, I don't want to do it anymore, I don't want to be in the class anymore. And so Steve takes her to visit the teacher to just have Robin kind of share what was going on. And she said, I, 
I just can't do it anymore. And the teacher looked at her and said, well, you know, I'd really, I really want you in my class. Would it make a difference if I told you that I'm going to give you an A right now? Would you stay in my class then? And Robin was sort of, uh, what? Like tears from her eyes, like, I guess, <laughs> yeah, I'd stay in your class if you were gonna give me an A. And then the teacher just opened her grade book and right next to Robin's name, wrote an A. And then she said this, now go along to class, learn and enjoy. You see the difference? In Christ, Paul's saying, listen, we already got the A. We already got everything we need. We, we've, we're already good before God because of Christ. We've got the A, so don't worry about it. Now go out and strain forward. Work hard. Press on. Press on. Not for your salvation, because you are saved. So Paul says, verse 13, Brothers, I don't consider that I've made this resurrection or this, this life my own yet. I waffle back and forth, but one thing I do, I try to forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. And he says, verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And so that leads to the last question. How is it that we can hold true to what we have attained? How is it that we hold on to Christ and not get focused on our own stuff? How is it that Christ is central. Well, I think Paul leads us there in verse 17, and essentially he tells us that instead of looking to ourselves, we need to also look to others that will point us to Jesus. So verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So you see the contrast Paul is making there. Paul is saying, you know, I can find people that you can imitate. Find people that are walking the way that I am walking, that are going to teach the things that I'm teaching you now so that they will constantly bring your focus back to who Jesus is and what he said he's done for you. Here's the deal. It's part of what it means to be still in this body that we are constantly, constantly, constantly forgetting and so you need a preacher. Not necessarily me, but you need someone to remind you. It can be any of you to one another to remind you who you are. What matters most is what God says about you, not about what the world says about you, not about what even your own insecurities say about you. It's like the song we sang. That's what matters. And you need to be reminded that it needs to be banging your head. Martin Luther, the great reformer, used to say, we need to hear the gospel all the time because it goes in one ear and out the other before the next Sunday. And when we're pointed there, then we're reminded that our citizenship is not ultimately here. And that's why we don't want to get stuck here. He says, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to transform our lowly bodies. What's Paul straining toward? What's he looking at? That. The day where death is no longer going to have a say over your life, where sickness is no longer going to be something that we inevitably have to attain. It just won't be there where people will not betray us and where we will not be hurt that day where we are finally all in paradise restored. 
So let's wrap this talk up and receive God's gifts for us at his table. As we've looked at today, Paul's sort of recipe for racing, he's told us what to look away from, namely our own works, told us what to look at, namely Christ's works for us, and then told us who to look to in the process, those who will point us to Christ's work. What does it all look like? Well, I think the best illustration I've come across of straining forward in the Christian life comes from the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. Uh, Derek Redmond was favored to win the gold medal in the 400 meters, but about 250 meters away from the finish line, his hamstring went out and he tore his hamstring and he just was stuck. I mean, he just could not go on. And of course, because this was the Olympics, it was filmed, and so you can go see it on YouTube today or wherever. Redmond bows down onto his knee and he's, he's instantly in tears. And I'm sure probably because of the physical pain, but also maybe even mainly because of the emotional pain. I mean, this is something the man trained his whole life for and now it's gone and he's not getting it back. I mean, devastating, devastating blow. So trainers and uh, people are coming over to check on him to see if he's okay. And as they're starting to look at him, he gets up on one leg and begins to hobble toward the finish line. And he takes a few steps and he stops and he grabs his leg and he's just in so much pain. And he's weeping in agony. And you can see that he just can't go on. There's no way he's finishing this race. He's determined to finish the race. He wants to strain to the finish line. But he's not going to get there. And then it's just a, a magical moment. Sort of out of the corner angle, the very, very back of the camera's angle. You see this large man run out onto the track. Definitely does not look like he belongs on the track at all. He's got a cap on. He's got a too large shirt. He's got his shorts don't really fit too well. Definitely doesn't look like a runner. And yet he's running. And there's people trying to stop the man from catching Redmond. I mean, and he's just batting them away and he's running to Redmond. And as he gets closer, it becomes clear that it's Redmond's father. And he grabs his son and puts his arm around his shoulder and carries him all the way to the finish line. And that is, in the final analysis, the truth for you and I today. As you strain forward, one thing you can be certain of, you're going to fall. You're going to injure yourself. You're going to injure others in the process. It just happens. It's part of life in this body. And you're going to wonder, and you're going to feel sometimes, maybe like you can't go on. Just don't have the legs for it. Remember, your father has promised to carry you to the finish line. As he said in the first chapter of this 
letter to the Philippians. It's a promise. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that ultimately our life is built on promise. Ultimately, that is our hope, not our effort. Yes, we want to strain toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, we want to avoid those things that will hurt our neighbor and hurt ourselves. Yes, we want to press on. But we want to press on with the knowledge and the confidence that you are ultimately the one that is carrying us and will get us to the finish line. So help us, Lord, as we prepare to come to your table to receive gifts, to come with that mentality, with dependence and humility. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.